We are, uh, we're starting a new series today, but I want to start by asking you this question. How would you define being successful in life? What, what defines success for you? What makes you a successful person? Is it that certain career accomplishment that you finally reach, you finally obtain, that, that you say, okay, I am successful? Is it an amount of money that you, you accrue, you get in your bank account, or you, your net worth gets up to? Is it, is it a certain lifestyle that you're able to live that now you say, okay, I'm a successful person? Is it simply having a wonderful marriage and family? And if you have that, then you say, I feel like I've lived a successful life. Or you say, I am well respected by others in this life. If others respect me, I'm living a successful life. What makes a successful life for you? How do you define that? When this series that I'm beginning, we're calling it Summer Reading. Now, I know for some of you, if you're, that brings back nightmares from when you were in school. Some of you are in school now. You're like, why are you bringing up summer reading? Because I hadn't even started mine yet, and school starts back in two weeks, right? But now when you become an adult, for some of us, we're like, hey, summer reading. Maybe I have more time to lay back and relax on vacation. Not my trip, but on vacation, I I can take a book or two and I can read. What books am I going to take and read with me this time? You know, so you kind of make these plans, especially those of you that are lounging on the beach and you don't have kids because you have kids. You can't read while you're on the beach, but you you go and you sit on the beach and you got your books and you just can't wait to read. Well, I want to do this series based on a book that I read not too long ago. It's a book called Home Run, uh, Learning God's Game Plan for Life. And he also, it's, it's authored by a guy named Kevin Myers and it's co-authored or not necessarily co-authored, but there's insights from John Maxwell. Maybe you've heard of John Maxwell before, but he gives leadership insights based on what Myers is talking about in, uh, in this book. Now, I really believe that we need to understand this as followers of Christ. The commission that Jesus gave us in this life. Do you remember the commission that Jesus gave his disciples and the commission that has been passed down all throughout to every follower of Christ? And it was this, to grow as a disciple and to make disciples. That's our commitment. That's what we're called to. Nothing else. That's what we're called to. And so I wonder how good are we at that? How good would you define yourself as growing as a disciple? But not just that but making disciples because this, uh, I love this book. Now, Kevin Myers, he's a pastor of a church called 12 stone church in Atlanta, Georgia. I had heard of the church. I had heard briefly a little bit about Kevin Myers, but 12 stone church in Atlanta, it would be considered a mega church. There's tens of thousands of people that go to this church. Uh, I never heard Kevin Myers speak. I'd never pulled up any messages from Kevin Myers. I was at a conference at the end of February. I heard him speak. I was captivated by his message, went and ordered his book. This book's the only book I think he's written. I read it. And then I was captivated by the message of this book. And I, I, I want to, to just share real quick, a recap. All right, don't get like, oh, great, a book review. No, all right, all right so a quick recap on it just to set us up for where we're going from this, okay? Quick recap is this. Myers speaks very openly and honestly in his book about the struggle that he had with what he believed that God had called him to in his life and the ministry that God had called him to. He, his focus had got distracted, he admitted, and he was defining success and ministry the wrong way. He had an admiration himself for John Maxwell, and at a conference, he was able to become connected with John Maxwell, and John Maxwell actually became a mentor of Kevin Myers. Now, if you know who John Maxwell is, you realize, wow, that's a pretty big opportunity. 
that John Maxwell began to champion, if we go back to June and what we talked about, John Maxwell began to champion Kevin Myers, not even realizing how many thousands of people that Kevin Myers would begin to champion in his life based on how John Maxwell championed his. It's a great illustration of what we talked about in June. But Myers had these visions that God had given him about ministry in his life. And these visions wasn't coming to fulfillment the way he thought they were going to play out. So what Myers did was he said, I'm going to go back and I'm going to study the life of Joseph. Now, if you know anything about the life of Joseph, you know that his life was kind of similar in the same way. Joseph had a dream and that dream didn't necessarily play out the way, probably the way Joseph thought it was. The story of Joseph is in Genesis chapter 37 to 50. If you've never read that, I encourage you to pull that out, pull your Bibles out, read Genesis 37 to 50, find a Bible study about it. If you've read it before, go reread it, dig into it a little bit. There's a lot that you can glean from that passage. But what Myers began to see was a pattern that's actually represented really all throughout scripture and without those, with those who followed God. And that picture that was conveyed, it was a visual for how growth and significance in life takes place when we are in God. The first thing that he noticed was that Joseph learned complete dependence on God. That God let Joseph lose in some situations in his life so that it would allow him to become completely dependent on God. In fact, Joseph was stripped of some things, namely his coat. If if you've ever heard anything about Joseph, maybe you've heard before the coat of many colors. That was Joseph. That's what Joseph's daddy had given him. Now, this coat was actually, uh, typically, it went to the oldest child. Because what that coat represented was it was an identity. It said the person that wears this coat doesn't have to do any manual labor. Everything is done for them. So now you understand why the brothers, when Joseph, the baby, got the coat that he don't have to do any manual labor, they're like, what? Right? I've got an older brother. He's felt that way about me before in my life. But... But Joseph, so what happened to Joseph is his brother stripped him of his coat, sold him as a slave. He became a prisoner. He went to Egypt. And then in this journey, though, all throughout this time, even as things were stripped of him, Joseph learned to trust God and he grew dependent more and more on God. Listen, everything, this is a very important thing. Everything that he otherwise would have depended on to accomplish his dream was removed so that he would ultimately depend on God for the dream to come to pass. Then Joseph learned next to win within. Basically what happened was Joseph was faced with this uh, a character defining decision where he had to stand on his values rather than give in to his desire. Okay, because he was tempted and seduced by Potiphar's wife. Again, he ran away in that situation and lost his outer coat that he was wearing because she grabbed it as he was running away. Then Joseph had to learn to win with others. He, 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 uh, he moved in his life from a son to a slave to a servant to second in command. And all the while that he did this, he was learning how to trust others, how to respect others, how to work with others, and how to grow with others. He was learning that pattern. And then finally, Joseph learned what it meant to win results. He learned how through his dependence on God, how all of that began to line up. And then he saw his life doing something with actual eternal significance. Now, Myers had a son who was going into middle school and he wanted to 
figure out how do I teach my son the best way these principles that are just all of a sudden lighting up for me? How do I teach my son these principles? So based on a love for the game of baseball that him and his son shared, he thought, well, there's four truths here. There's four bases in baseball. And people have done this before, but he said, I'm going to teach these principles to my son. And he did. And they worked so well that he has been using these principles to disciple people in his church ever since. And real quick, this is the way he does it. It starts at home plate. Everything starts at home plate. The goal of the home plate is to connect, right? Any batter that comes up to the plate in baseball, they want to connect. They want to hit. Now, they can get to first base on a wall. They can get to first base by being hit by a pitch. But any batter, when they come to the base, they want to hit. They want to connect. And they're taught to go to the plate with purpose. They're taught where to find their power at the plate. And they go there to connect. Everything in our spiritual life starts at home plate. In fact, everything starts and ends at home plate. And it's all about our dependence and our connection to God. And this is where we find our true purpose and our true power. And the next thing we have to learn is, look, we've got to learn to run the bases the right way. If you've ever had a child that's gone through T-ball or you've coached T-ball, you understand, you see that for some reason, there's something about kids that when they're first learning the game, they get up and they hit the ball. For some reason, they want to run to third, not to first. And we do it in T-ball, they do it in T-ball, and we laugh and all that's so cute. But as you get older and as you, as you coach and as they get older, you realize how frustrating it is and how counterproductive it actually is, right? It's called first for a reason. And so we teach them how to run the bases. It's the same thing in our spiritual life and our journey with God. But too often, we're going to see throughout the series, and Meyer's taught in his book, but we're going to dive into it. Sometimes we run the bases the wrong way. The first thing that we need to do, first base teaches us character. It's that place where we need to learn to win those battles within, those internal battles that we're focusing on and that we're trying to fight. Then second base is this. Second base is we learn, it's the people base. It's where we learn community. It's where we learn to win with others. We learn to to love others the way that Christ taught us to love others, to live with others the way Christ taught us to live with others. As we're doing this, as we're depending on God, as we're winning the battles within, as we're living with others, we're putting ourselves in scoring position. Just as you would in baseball, you get to third base and this is that performance base. This is that competence where you learn how to do what God has called you to do with excellence. And you begin to see yourselves doing things with eternal significance in this life. Not just what we think is successful, but what God says is successful and good in this life. So as we trust God, as we allow him to work in our life, as we live well with others and love others the way that Christ has taught us to love others. As we do the things that God has called us to do in this life, we'll see ourselves doing things with eternal significance and bringing him glory. And just like with baseball and every, every day is a new opportunity because there may be a moment we fail. There may be a time we mess up. There, There may be a time we don't do it exactly right, but every new day, every opportunity is a new chance for us to come up and start over and do it right with God. So using this pattern, that's the recap. Let's jump in. Let's dive into these thoughts together and let's explore this. Go with me to John chapter 15, John chapter 15. And let's look at a teaching that Jesus gave his disciples. And you're going to see in this 
really these principles all throughout it. All right, John chapter 15, we're going to start at verse 1. It says this, I am the true grapevine. Your translations may say I am the vine. Basically, the picture that anybody would typically have gotten when they said vine was of a grapevine. My father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch of mine that does not produce fruit. And he prunes the branches that do bear fruit so they will produce even more. You have already been pruned and purified by the message I've given you. Now, I want you to pay attention to how many times we see this next phrase throughout these next verses. Your translation may say, remain in me. Your translation may say, abide in me. But listen to this. Remain in me and I will remain in you. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it is severed from the vine. And you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. Yes, I'm the vine and you are the branches. Those who remain in me and I am them will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Anyone who does not remain in me is thrown away like a useless branch and withered. Such branches are gathered into a pile to be burned. But if you remain in me and my words remain in you, you may ask for anything you want and it will be granted. When you produce much fruit, you are my true disciples. This brings great glory to my father. I have loved you even as the father has loved me. Remain in my love. When you obey my commandments, you remain in my love, just as I obey my father's commandments and remain in his love. I have told you these things so that you will be filled with my joy. Yes, your joy will overflow. This is my commandment. Love each other in the same way I've loved you. There's no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. You're my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you slaves because a master doesn't confide in his slaves. Now you are my friends since I have told you everything the father told me. You didn't choose me. I chose you. I pointed you to go and produce lasting fruit so that the father will give you whatever you ask for using my name. This is my command. Love each other. Now, again, you you probably see these principles being played out all throughout this passage. But how many times did we see over and over Jesus telling his disciples and his listeners, abide in me, remain in me. You understand what he's saying? You have to be connected and dependent on me and on the Father. Everything in your life is dependent upon how dependent you are on God. Everything. Now, I have this... Just, it's very simple. There's nothing complex about it. But uh, we bought a pie last week and last Saturday, and I didn't get to use it. Uh, but I got to eat it. Um, so I had to buy a new pie <laughs> for this week. Now, um, uh, most of the time, we think of our life kind of like we think of a pie. What do you mean, Javen? Well, I mean this. We think of it in slices. We cut our pie, we have a piece of the pie. And we look at our life as I've got my work piece, I've got my home piece, I've got my marriage piece, I've got other relationships piece, I've got my uh, finances piece, I've got, you know, whatever, recreational piece. I've got all these pieces of the pie. And occasionally I might cut a piece and sometimes that piece might, but, but if I'm a follower of Christ, then too, I've got my God piece. And so I cut that piece and sometimes that piece might ooze into God or I, I go into that God piece on Sundays and that piece might ooze a little bit into the other pieces of the pie. But God's looking at us and he's saying, no, 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 no. 
Don't look at your life as if you've got a pie and you've got pieces of that pie. That's not how I want you to look at your life. He says, the way that you need to look at your life is I'm the crust. Everything about your life goes into me. And I undergird everything about your life. Everything about you should be completely dependent on me. He's the crust. And we fill everything of our life in him. That's the way that we should view God. Right? Now, we're to abide in him. That means we make ourselves at home in Christ is basically what Jesus is saying. Have you ever been told to make yourself at home when you visit someone's house? Some of us, we're not very comfortable with that. They tell you to make yourself at home, but you still treat yourself as a visitor. Some people have no problem making themselves at home. You ever had a visitor come in, you tell them, make yourself at home, and they really make themselves at home, right? I remember I was in college. We lived in this, we had this house that we lived in, and there was this other guy, and he, he was a musician, and he played with the band there at college, the singers who we had come uh, a while back. He was a guitarist in that band. Well, he came, and he was just... There he didn't, he needed a place to stay. And we said, well, you can hang out with us, make yourself at home. Dude made himself at home for several months in our house, just sleeping on a couch, right? Eating whatever was left on the counter, you know? That's why we couldn't leave pie sitting on the counter. They had to stay in our dorm room. But, you know, because he made himself at home. But God is telling you, make yourself at home in my presence. Rest in my love. Abide in in me. Abiding in him is not so much about worrying, am I doing everything I'm supposed to be doing for God, as it is about saying, am I resting in his thoughts about me? What he believes about me. Because we need to know that God's acceptance of us is not given to us based as a reward for what we've done right. It's given to us as a gift. And that was done through Jesus Christ and his death and his resurrection. And see, when you receive that, when you abide in it, when you rest in it, his life starts to flow through you. And then you start to change, not because you're told to change, but because you just change. And what happens is it's not just your behavior and your actions, it's your desires. But that's what we'll talk more about next week. But we've got to understand Because too often we run the bases the wrong way and we're looking at outward stuff. And Jesus is saying, just rest and remain and abide and connect and depend on me. And the more you do that, the more I'll grow in you. See, Christ kept the law perfectly for us in our place. We cannot add to that love. We cannot add anything to that. We cannot make him love us more. And as you're reminded of that truth, the more you grow in him, the more you change in him. The expectation is not for us to earn God's love. Get that this morning. The expectation is for us to live in constant awareness of God's love. That's being connected and dependent upon God. Everything in your life depends on how much you depend on God. As Meyer said in his book, I like this quote, he said, God is more interested in how deep we grow our roots than how big we grow our branches. 
the quality of a tree's fruit is more dependent on the health of its roots than the height of its limbs. We've got to become connected and dependent on God. Flip over with me to Romans chapter 12. It's a passage of scripture that we reference quite often around here. It's the central of our uh, our purpose. I've said before, it's in that hallway right out there. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 to 2. It echoes this principle. Listen to this. And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he's done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Don't copy the behavior and customs of the world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you'll learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. See, as we renew our minds in the gospel, we're transformed into the kind of people that God wants us to be from our heart. The gospel is like a well. The the deeper you dig into it, the better the water you draw out. Dig deep into what he has called you. It's not about how you begin your walk with Christ. It's how you grow in your walk with Christ. Do you continue to deepen yourself in in your faith to become more and more dependent and connected on God? When Paul brings this, uh, 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 comes to this verse in this letter or comes to this part of his letter to the church of Rome, he begins using this imagery that would have been very familiar with the Jewish culture. And, but even Gentiles would have understood what he was talking about when it comes to sacrifices. But there was a couple of things that were distinct about Paul's sacrifice and what he was talking about here. One is this. He calls it a living sacrifice. Now, uh, the problem with a living sacrifice is it's always going to try to get itself off the altar. It's trying to work its way off. But what Paul is saying is that every day, in every new opportunity, in every new situation, in every morning, you need to remind yourself that I've got to be completely and utterly dependent and connected to God. And I've got to lay my life down before him. And we have to remember, because when we run the bases the wrong way, we're thinking platform in the words of how, what do I need to do to be successful? What do I need to do to create this? What do I need to do to have this? God's saying, you're not called to a platform. You're called to an altar. The platform may come. The success will come. The opportunities will come. The notoriety may come. The influence will come. But first, you've got to put yourself on the altar. And you have got to become completely dependent upon me. Another distinction of this is that it's not to obtain salvation. See, most sacrifices that were done in in the Old Testament, they, they were done as a way to seek forgiveness. Paul is saying this sacrifice is in response to the salvation that Jesus has given you. That you place yourself on the altar, not to earn something, but in response to what he's done for you. And then Paul says, this is a true act of worship. And the word that he used there is the word in the Greek is the word logikos, which is where we get our word logical. In other words, what Paul is saying 
is this is a common sense response to what God has done for you. One commentator worded it this way. I like the way he says it. He says, Paul used the term with the meaning rational and reasonable as we, as was common in the Greek language. His purpose in doing so was to emphasize that yielding one's whole self to God is eminently reasonable. Since God has been so merciful, failure to dedicate one's life to him is the height of folly and irrationality. It's what Paul is showing us. It's what Paul is teaching. See, he's, he's kind of pointing out that basically at the core of all of our sin and most of our sin is idolatry. It's what we saw the Israelites and, and those in the Old Testament dealing with over and over and over again. There was something that they, was put, they were putting on a pedestal other than God. But see, we decide, what happens here is we decide that something in our life has such worth and such weight that we think possessing that is the key to the happiness in our life. And so we pursue that and we prioritize it over our relationship with God. And we're running the bases the wrong way. Pastor Brian referenced this quote two weeks ago from an atheist by the name of David Wallace, where he basically said, there's no such thing as atheism because we all worship something. This is what he was pointing out to you have something in your life that you're putting up to a place that says, this deserves my pursuit. And whatever you've put in that place, that's what you're worshiping. So ask yourself, what have I been willing to sacrifice for? Because whatever we are sacrificing for, whatever we're giving up for in this life to gain, that's what we worship. Paul is pointing out, look, the gospel, it shows us that the only one worthy of our worship, the only one that you can lean on and lean your soul on and find true ultimate satisfaction and significance is God and in Jesus Christ. Blaine Pascal, he was a philosopher. He had this statement, a very simple statement that said, the human heart is a vacuum. In other words, what he was saying is there's this hole that's seeking to be filled and it can only be filled by God. So what you are seeking, what you're searching for outside of God, God is the one that can fill that. The the, the relationship that you're seeking, that you're trying to to, to get love from, God is the only one that's going to give you true fulfillment and love. The security that you're trying to find either through wealth or through relationships or through a career, God is the only one that's going to give you the fulfillment of that security. The approval that you're seeking from, from another person, from a boss, from a spouse, from, from a family member, whatever. God is the only one that's going to give you the fulfillment of that approval. Yes, you might get glimpses in other places, but the fulfillment of it all comes from him. And that's why we have got to be completely dependent and connected to God. He is our true source of purpose. He is our true source of power, his Holy Spirit through us. And everything in our life depends on our dependence on God. Let me ask you this. If you've said a prayer before seeking God, Forgive me of my sins. Give me eternal life in Christ. Does it make sense 
to trust him with your eternal soul, but not trust him with your daily life. If he's trustworthy to take away your sins and give you eternity in heaven, is he not trustworthy enough to trust every day of your life? Even like Joseph in the situations that are difficult to understand. Depend on him, connect with him. And then Paul says this. He says that you'll begin to know the good, perfect, pleasing will of God. See, the will of God here is not not necessarily some particular choice that we, we make other than it's a life that leads to right choices. I remember one point in my life going to talk to a, a guy that I considered a, a mentor in my life at the time. His name was Tony Miller. I felt like God had called me to a situation, called me to something, felt like it was, I was in God's will. But then some things were happening. And so I'm wondering, okay, is there another thing? And I went and I talked to him and I kept saying over and over to him, I just don't want to be outside the will of God. I just don't want to be outside the will of God, man. I, I, I just don't want to be outside the will of God. And he basically looked at me and said, Javen, do you love God? Do you trust God? Are you trying to obey him and everything in your life? Yes, I am. And basically what he was telling me was that the will of God is more about having the right heart posture of worship and surrender, what Paul references here, to God than it is figuring out some particular specific decision for your life. Because see, here's what happens. We get so caught up in searching God's will for our life, meaning what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to uh, have happen in my life? And we're so focused on pursuing that, that ironically, we make the will of God an idol in our life because we're seeking more what we should do than we are seeking the source of life. We have got to connect and depend on him. You know, I started thinking more about Joseph and I started thinking about the way it began with a dream and then later in his life when he was asked to interpret a dream. When Joseph started his life with a dream, you know, he was very boisterous about that dream. Hey guys, God's, I've had this dream, two different dreams, both times things are bowing to me. You know, he's just spewing it out. Not a lot of understanding very naive. But then later in his life, as he's grown to trust God and depend on God more and more every day in his life, he gets asked the question by one of the leaders of Egypt to inter- can you interpret this dream? And his response was this, no man can interpret dreams. But then he says this, but I know the God who can. Joseph, the more he became dependent and connected on God, the more he understood dreams in his life. And the more you become connected and dependent on God, the more you understand his will for your life, the vision he has for your life, the dreams he has for your life what he wants to do through you, your comfort, your contentment, your identity. It cannot be found, should not be found in anything other than your connection and dependence on God. 
if it is, you may find yourself like Joseph and you may find whatever you're putting your comfort, your contentment and your identity in will eventually be stripped away from you until you learn to be completely dependent on God and connected to him. When we abide in Christ, God renews our heart and our minds and we begin to see who he's calling us to be, but it has to start with connection to him. Stand with me this morning. Everything in our life, as we're growing up, we're taught to be independent, to learn to be independent, right? When you were a young person, your parents probably taught you how to learn to be independent of them because one day you were going to be without them. We're teaching our kids how to grow, how to make choices, how to be independent of us because we know one day we won't be around. They'll have to be independent. But as we see all throughout scripture and in this life, when it comes to following God, what God does is counter to the world. And where we may learn to be independent as we grow older in our life, when it comes to God and our journey with him and our faith in him, we have to learn every day to grow more and more dependent on God. Not independent of him, but more and more dependent on God. So I just conclude this message today before we go into worship and spend some time reflecting on God's word. Are you completely dependent on God? Are you taking the time every day to connect with God in some way? Are you dependent on him? Are you trusting him? Are you seeking him? Are you going after him with everything that's in you? Have you even began that journey? Have you even taken the first step and said, Jesus, I need you to forgive me of my sins because I've been living this life away from you and fulfilling every selfish desire I have. And Jesus, I I need to forgive you. I believe in what you did on the cross. Forgive me of my sins. If you need to begin that today, I encourage you, make that prayer your own as we worship and seek him and just cry out to him saying, Jesus, forgive me and let me follow you believe in you. But as we worship today, as we reflect on him in these closing moments, I just encourage you to seek and and reflect on your life and say, am I completely dependent on God? If there's things that you're worrying about, give them to him and just begin to say, God, I want to trust you in these. Let my flesh not rise up to cause me to worry more than I trust. Grow in him. Let's worship together. Let's reflect on his word this morning. If you need prayer in any way today, we would love for you to reach out to us. You can go to our website, bwccamden.com, go to our contact page. You'll find the link there to uh, request prayer or send us anything that you uh, would like to communicate with us today. Or you can also simply text the word prayer to 803-676-7566. And we will be back in touch with you to find out how we can be in prayer for you. God bless you. We hope that you have a great week.